friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we welcome you back to Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for joining us again this week. I have a treat for you today. It's a treat for me, certainly, but I'm sure it's a treat for you, too. I have my husband, Dr. Stephen Christie, joining me. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Grace, good to be with you. I wanted to have you on because um, you wrote an amazing book that came out in January. It was just published by St. Paul Press, right? Absolutely. Okay, good. (laughs) St. Paul Press, it's called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. It happens to be a fabulous book, not just because my own husband wrote it, but it does have 30-second pro-life rebuttals to all those pro-choice arguments which you hear all the time and the ones for which you need to have a very quick and accessible response right at the tip of your tongue because you know you're going to get buttonholed in an elevator or you know at a wedding or something where you just want to, people will say to you, but why are you pro-life or why did you vote for so-and-so? And you can say... This is why. And not only have your little, what do you call it, Steve? You have a, a, a name for this. The thing that you say when somebody asks you why you're pro-life. My little 30-second summary of why I'm pro-life. Okay, why don't, you know what, share, share your 30-second summary because it's so practiced and so nice and I wish I had one too. Maybe you can help me come up with one after the show. So please share with our listeners. Sure. And I say this because our, our positions are so strong and persuasive if we can articulate them. But so many on our side know abortion is wrong, but we can't articulate why. So I put this together myself. You can use mine. You can make your own. But I think we all need to have it. And mine goes like this. I'm pro-life because I'm pro-science. There's overwhelming scientific consensus that life begins at conception. I'm pro-life because social justice begins in the womb. Because every living human being is entitled to the most fundamental of human rights, that being life itself. Because being a burden on someone is never justification for killing them. And I'm pro-life because I'm pro-woman. Abortion degrades women, treating their fertility as a defect and enabling men to use and abandon them at their most vulnerable state. Abortion never empowers women, only the men who wish to exploit them. And I'm pro-life because I'm against violence. Abortion is not only immoral, but is an act of extreme violence against the most vulnerable, and I'm pro-life because of the visible evidence. Ultrasound and now MRI clearly show the world what's moving inside a woman's body, and that's a living baby. And lastly, I'm pro-life because of objective morality. If abortion is the killing of an unborn child, then it's immoral and cowardly to remain silent. And that's why I'm pro-life. And then I always add, at the end, I say, and why aren't you? And I always get the same response, stuttering and stammering, and, and if they're and if they're really on top of their game, they'll yell at me misogynist or something. But it really, it's, it's great to be able to articulate these very persuasive of arguments. Well, and you really hit all the big ones, right? You hit the, um, the the moral ones and the ethical ones and the scientific ones, and um, it's wonderful to be able to to rifle them off like that. One, 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 two, three. I personally have been stumped very, very many times, even though I've been in the pro-life uh, arena for so many years. Um, suddenly, someone will throw a question out at me, and I I just won't have it at the at the answer at the tip of my tongue. And and some of the questions can be very difficult because they come from a place. They come sometimes very much from the good-hearted place in in the questioner. Do you agree, Stephen? 
No, absolutely. And, and I, I think the reason why I'm, I'm in tune with, with having a good reply is that I spent so many years of my life as a, as a pro-choice person. So I know what the other side is thinking. And so I, when you know what the arguments are on the other side, you, you're more in line and, and ready to, to make your points. And I think, I think my, my history of where I came from is really what has allowed me to, to, to move as I do now. Because when you were pro-choice, you were just as good a person as you are now. You just didn't know so many things, right? Right. Uh, that's very kind of you to say, by the way, for my wife. Um, you know, I, I always remind people when we're doing these things that being pro-choice is not bad. Being pro-choice is just wrong. And it's very important we know that distinction uh, because if we're just poking our, our opponents in the eye all day long, we're never going to win them over to our side. And, and we're trying to, to win the hearts and minds of the people that we're talking with. And the only way we can do that is by making them know that we care about them. And if we're telling them they're bad, bad, bad all the time, uh, nobody wants to listen to you, and you certainly aren't going to change hearts uh, and open and open minds that way. So again, being pro-choice is wrong, and I've been wrong on other issues in my life many, many times, as my wife will tell you. Uh, but in this case, that's the position is wrong. It's not bad. You know, with that, with the idea of winning hearts, I want to call our our guest, my second guest. Her name is Kristen Hawkins, and she is the president of Students for Life, which uh, is an organization which concentrates on that very important generation of college students who will be running the world someday and we want them um, to have a real a beautiful understanding of the dignity of life and Kristen Hawkins works on this uh, very beautifully. Welcome to the show Kristen. Thanks for having me Dr. Christie. it's great to be with you again. Oh well please call me Gracie and on the on the air with us is my husband Stephen Christie. please call him Stephen. he's also a doctor um, but please call us Stephen and Gracie and we're both of us very excited to talk to you because um, you're a person who has your finger on the pulse of the youth uh, when it comes to this um, this problem of evangelizing the world right with the pro-life message mm -hmm. and this is what you dedicate yourself to so we wanted to ask we wanted to talk to you about how you see this moment in particular where we're standing somewhat in limbo as we await for the Supreme Court to make their big decision. What are your your hopes and your fears? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of fears that the pro-abortion movement has been spreading uh, online with the help of the mainstream media since uh, May 2nd. Um, and so what we've been trying to do is really assuage those fears as much as possible and show America uh, that a post-Roe America is not a scary America. And in fact, it's something that they need to be excited for and looking forward to. Um, one of my biggest concerns, though, uh, in a post-Roe America, I have thought two. One is many people are uninformed about the state of our abortion laws. And so they think that the reversal of Roe is simply mission accomplished. It's done. Uh, when it's not. And in fact, that will just be the beginning of the biggest fight we've ever had in the pro-life movement. You know, reversing Roe is is phase one, check off phase one off the task list. Uh, but there's like two more phases, uh, and this will be perhaps the most difficult next phase. And I think we need to be very clear when speaking with folks across America that now the work is really beginning. You know, these legislators that for years have said, you know, oh, elect me to your state house. I'm pro-life. But they really haven't done anything. And they said, well, it's because of the Supreme Court. 
Now they're going to have to act. Now they're going to be courageous. Now Planned Parenthood may very literally be coming to their doorstep to protest them when they pass the law. Um, and so we need to, to educate our, you know, our community, our base, that more work is going to be need to be done. And really, if you haven't been involved, you've got to get involved. And I think the second thing I've, I've been concerned about is the overall lack of awareness. And this is kind of the offensive fight. I've been lecturing you know, any any audience that will let me uh, that's pro-life about this concern. We have knocked on 120,000 doors in the last year and a half at Students for Life. We call it our abortion-free cities campaign. And this campaign, we're knocking in doors in neighborhoods surrounding abortion facilities. And it is shocking how everybody knows where the Planned Parenthood is, what they can have done at the Planned Parenthood, but nearly 73 percent well, in some cities, and as high as 80 percent of, of these neighbors do not know about the nonviolent alternatives that exist in our community. For you know, 50 years, we as a product movement have been supporting and starting and sustaining these pregnancy resource centers and maternity homes that vastly outnumber abortion facilities. Yet, majority of our neighbors don't know that they exist. And we need to make sure that in a, in a post-Raw America, no woman stands alone and she knows we're the ones standing beside her. Well, you, I'm glad you bring up the pregnancy uh, care centers. Uh, and recently, and m- maybe if you're not following along in the pro-life news arena or, or just the conservative news arena, you may not know that they're under tremendous attack. And one of the centers I work for um, here in Miami was uh, was vandalized with death threats or with threats of violence, at least. Um, mm-hmm. This is, uh, like you said, I think that does come to a lot of ignorance. It comes down to ignorance of knowing what these uh, centers stand for. They are not places where, where, where we try to talk women out of having abortions. Th- these are places where we are giving women options that are not abortion. They can still choose abortion if they want, but at least we're helping them make a, a real choice. And Stephen, you talk about the idea of choice in your book and what real choice sounds like or looks like. I do. I was just following up on Christian's point, though, that one of the things that the the pro-choice movement has been successful at is portraying the pro-lifers as people only concerned with banning abortion. And we have to get the message out to everyone that we are much more than just banning for uh, banning abortions, that every woman needs to know that the pro-life movement is on their side. So when somebody complains that the foster home system isn't working well, we need to be there making sure the foster home system is working well. When people say that abortion, uh, the uh, adoption process isn't streamlined, we need to be there uh, streamlining that process. When people say uh, that we are not pr- providing uh, networks of housing or uh, helping women that are suffering from domestic violence, we are, but we can always do more. And I think that's one of the, the messages we really need to get out, as, as Kristen was saying. And do you think, Kristen, that that's a, that's a difficult message to get out to the young, especially because of the, the uh, culture that they've been marinating in, they've been growing in, where pro, pro-lifers are equated with um, just misogynists? Yeah, it can be. Um, it, can, it definitely can be. I would say that th- that's definitely our messaging. Um, but I would say that, you know, what Stephen brought up, those points, those are things that every American, every concerned human being should be should care about. Children who are languishing in foster care or families who are trying to adopt but yet can't get through the rigorous and expensive process. Um, and we really need to challenge, like when I'm speaking on campuses, of saying, look, this isn't singularly the pro-life movement's problem to fix. We all need to be doing a better job 
um, to fix these problems that we have all identified and clearly see uh, that are emerging in our society. Um, we exist as a pro-life movement to show America the violence of abortion and to stand with her and say she doesn't have to choose abortion, that, that she doesn't stand alone, and that there are, there are real nonviolent options available for her. And I think that's, that's really important for us to continue to say that over, like, I, I, I would caution against us saying that that's all of our problems to fix because i know as a movement i know just from simple you know you know business school training this the little bit of business classes i've taken um that we i can't be everything to every person and i you know my organization my time my talent my the treasure that's entrusted to us at students for life we need to focus on the main thing for us, which is educating Americans about the violence of abortion and calling them to action and showing them how they can take action to save lives and protect women. And so I, I always encourage our, our students to say, absolutely, we need to address these problems. And then ask those people that you're speaking with, will you stand with me? What are you doing to solve this problem that you brought up? Because all I see is you using the extreme case you're using this very sad story that's as someone's actual life as justification for your extremist views on abortion. I mean, I, I, there's nothing more frustrating when somebody gets up in a room and starts to lecture, you know, me about how much pro-lifers don't care. And then they chat out, you know, uh, well, what about a woman in this circumstance? And it, it, it's using this trauma that she's experiencing to justify 100% of all abortions, to justify their extremist positions. And, you know, it's, I actually saw a really interesting TikTok video uh, made by a pro-abortion person who I actually don't think she'll be pro-abortion much longer the other day, where she actually was like, we have to stop doing this. This is unhealthy for women who've survived sexual assault. If, if we support abortion, let's argue our support for abortion without dragging her into the conversation. And I couldn't agree with that person more. Argue and, 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 and make your case, state your case why you believe a unique whole human life should be destroyed in the womb simply because they're inconvenient. And let's start there. You know, I like the way you that that, that 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 TikTok person put it, right? Like, you are really using somebody else's terrible trauma to justify, you know, this tiny sliver of people who who is, who who have a terrible trauma like that and end up with a, with with an unwanted pregnancy to justify the vast majority of abortions, which are simply elective and usually for the, um, an inconvenience, no, an inconvenience factor. What are some of the arguments that you hear on college campuses besides that one? Um, what are the more compelling, like what, what are the ones that keep coming up for, for people to, that people throw at you and say, this is why abortion must remain legal? Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously sexual assault comes up in every case. Um, I hear a lot of, you know, suffering questions of, well, if a child is going to suffer, hmm. you know, that's really hard on the parents and the parents are going to suffer and the child's going to suffer. And it's really interesting that sometimes they're even, they will bring up the suffering of the parents um, because that's really what we're getting at is because you may suffer as a parent um, or, you know, because somebody else may suffer, like it. It doesn't hold, doesn't make sense. Like in what other case do we say, oh, this person's been diagnosed with 
cancer, they're going to suffer. Let's just end their life today. No, we say we're going to go through a very painful chemo radiation process where you're going to suffer more, where it's going to hurt and you're going to be sick. But, but we know that your life has value. We want to see you survive and get through this. And we're willing to stand beside you and get through this. And I, and I think that's what's so interesting is we have a lot of people who kind of just want to take the easy way. It's just like this false compassion, I guess, for suffering in our, in our nation. Um, you know, to, you, to have compassion is to stand with somebody, um, to be with them. Uh, through their suffering, not to just say, I'm going to wipe you clean out of existence. What, what do you think, Stephen? What is that idea that, that avoiding suffering um, has to be the highest good? It's interesting. Uh, when people make the arguments that abortion is best for unwanted children or for deformed children or handicapped children, what they're saying is that they think it's better to eliminate the sufferer than to eliminate the suffering. So instead of improving, as we said, foster care or adoption processes, we should kill a child. And how is that ever an act of kindness? It's never an act of fairness or compassion to kill someone because they're potentially unwanted. Which brings me to a question I, I had for Kristen. I, I do a fair amount of work debating on these issues with people, but nothing compared to yours. And I've watched videos of you multiple times debating college kids on campuses. And I'm curious, I've learned that the arguments on the pro-life side, which are based on facts, science, and truth, are extremely compelling. And I've learned that it's not that difficult to win the individual argument. But my question is, where's the disconnect in your opinion? Where is the challenge? Each argument is easy to win. So why why are we having trouble connecting with with young people? I, I have theories, but I'm curious. Sure. I mean, that, that, that's the thing you have to think about. You have to win the person. So when I'm on a campus and I give a speech and I have protesters to come to protest me, I, I'm very I, I'm very much aware that the people who are there to gather, who've looked at my tweets, who hate me before I come, who have protest signs against me, I'm probably not going to change their mind. At best, I'm going to be able to leave a nugget of truth in their brain. What I'm really doing and what I'm most interested in is compelling those sitting in the audience, those in the mushy middle. For example, my most recent video that kind of went viral and got banned from TikTok because it was <laughs> just you know, spewing truth. Um, there was a girl who came up to me before the event started and, and told me, you know, I'm pro-choice. I'm in the middle. My friends are going to be really mean to you, and I'm really sorry about that. But I want you to know I really want to hear what you have to say on this issue. And, you know, the whole speech, she was the person I was winning over. She was the one I wanted to make my case to. And her friends actually helped prove the point uh, for me, to be honest with you. Because when her friends stood up and, you know, I had them deny science in order to justify their extremist beliefs, uh, I saw her eyebrows go up because she realized, wait, wait a minute, what did they just have to do? In order to justify their you know, pro-abortion beliefs, they just had to say this. Um, and so I think that's what we have to keep in mind. You have to, you know, the, the people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's the John Maxwell adage of, you know, people have to know you before they're going to listen to you. We use the evangelical model at Students for Life of belong, believe, behave, which is why we spend so much of our time and money and energy building groups on campuses that build relationships, that have one-on-one conversations, that are constantly out there on campuses, not only talking about the violence of abortion, educating those most directly targeted by the abortion industry, but they're also transforming the campuses to support pregnant and parenting women. Um, and what they're doing is they're showing that campus 
who pro-life is and what pro being pro-life is all about. And, and the research we've done, you know, we know pro-life has a bad brand um, and how the mainstream media paints us, how they depict us or old, angry white people who are religious <laughs> and are shoving religion some down the woman's throat and don't care about her at all and want her barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. That's essentially who they tell her who we are. So when we have young, joyful you know, kids out in front of the Supreme Court cheering for a pro-life decision or they're on campuses saying, how can we change the narrative on campus so no woman has to choose between the life of her child and her education? That challenges the narrative. And that's what these students for life groups are doing. They're making people like give us a second look because that's all, what you just said seems right. The arguments are there. Science, logic, philosophy, it's all on our side. We just have to get them to take the ear pods out of their ears and give us a few dang minutes. A Gallup poll came out um, a couple weeks ago, June 9th, I think, that had uh, the usual interesting uh, breakdowns of the demographics. And I'll just mention a couple of them to the two of you. So 47% of people surveyed think abortion is morally acceptable. So that's 47%. And Gallup made a point of saying that's the highest ever since they've been polling um, oh, I think since 2001, so 47%. Um, but the country is still split, pro-choice, 49%, and pro-life, 47%. That's about half and half. Now, uh, something that caught my attention was that college graduates um, are much more pro-choice than non-college grads, 65 to 40%. So what's going on at the... First, of two questions for you first, Chris, uh, Kristen. Um how do we get to this point where this this new generation, which understands ultrasound, they know there's no longer this concept of a blob of cells. They know there's a child developing in the mother. And yet we still have 47% thinking abortion is morally acceptable. And then what's happening in college with these college grads being so much more pro-choice than non-college grads? Yeah. Well, it's cognitive dissonance. It's a lack of a Christian worldview the lack of, uh, of acknowledgement that fundamental truth exists. Those would be the reasons uh, in the short answer. You know, we have, and you also have the persuasion, the bully factor of what people actually believe about abortion. And then they're, you know, going to college and they're called bigots and racists and, you know, misogynists. Uh, for not supporting abortion. And they think, oh my gosh, I can't be on, you know, if they don't know how to defend their beliefs, they get called all these nasty names, which they, you know, they're, they're, you know, mortified to be called. Then they adopt those views thinking, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer this question. So maybe I am wrong. um, Or maybe I'm just willing, you know, not to speak up in order not to be labeled one of these things. I mean, you can't, you can't underestimate the power of, of name calling in our society where, you know, labels matter in our society. They shouldn't, but labels really matter in our society. And you have a lot of people that they will do anything to avoid being labeled something. And that, that was, that even includes, you know, denying the humanity of the child, even if they know the humanity of the child, we have a lot of people who are simply silent in the face of evil. Um, and there's a lot of evil going on in our world today. There's a lot of things. I mean, 
you know, let's talk about you know, the transgender issue and these little girls, little girls, little girls who are telling mom and dad, I feel like I'm a boy. And the parents are so afraid that they're going to be labeled a transphobe or a bigot that they're instead of saying, well, maybe she's just a tomboy or maybe she's a phase or maybe we should have her go to meet with somebody. They rush to Target to get her a chest binder. Oh, my. I mean. This is this is a problem, um, but but the parents don't want to be labeled. They don't want to be labeled. They don't want to get a name called. They want to be considered an ally. Um, and so I think it. You know, this is a unique moment in our world and our nation where you're going to be called names. Yes, your pregnancy center may be vandalized. You know, we're having to hire a full-time security, or we have a very small national office outside Washington, D.C., because the vast majority of our 100 staff are on campuses. I now have, I'm going to have to hire an armed security guard to protect our staff from the threats and the violence that we're receiving. I mean, but it just doesn't surprise me, because those who, you know, advocate for violence behind the closed doors of the abortion facility, what, what stops them from committing an industry? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to be ready. Um, But we have to ready ourselves, I think, as Christians to understand that being a Christian isn't always easy. And sometimes we have to do some hard, hard things and we have to be willing to speak up. What do you think, Stephen? Where do you think the the things are young people are going wrong when they get to college? I would just expand on what Kristen said. She talked about a discarding of traditional Judeo-Christian values. And we're in a modern secular culture now where everything is about the self. We have to find ourselves and express ourselves and be true to ourselves. And self-esteem is everything. And we take selfies with our, you know, while we eat lunch with a tuna fish sandwich for the world to know. Everything is about self. And previously, in in our traditional or Judeo-Christian culture, we thought about self, but in a radically different way. It was selflessness and and self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-restraint and self-giving about losing yourself in the service of others. And and just this radical change has led to a really to a a defective human anthropology where our own personal self-sovereignty is all that matters. And anything that gets in the way of that has to be crushed, even if it's our own children. We'll crush them, literally, literally. So I think that's the underlying nature of where things have gone wrong. Kristen, before we go, what? give us some words of hope. Um, we talked about our fears, your fears and my fears and Steve's fears about what happens when Dob falls um, and the challenges before us. But give us hope uh, for the, um, yeah. you who are in contact with the young generation. Well, I have hope because... This is the, you know, this is the pro-life generation that's going to become the first post-pro generation. And we're about to do something that I was told when I started Students for Life by my own pro-life mentors was impossible. To see Roe versus Wade reversed. We're making history. And because of this Roe reversal, because of the 26 plus states are going to move very quickly to, to limit abortion or ban all abortion. We will see lives saved because of our work, because of our continuous pressure. And that's because of everyone listening. Because for 15 years, we have refused to sit down and shut up about this issue, which is what they've wanted all along. We've done something that, you know, I was just doing an interview with EWTN Hungary, and we were talking about the European pro-life movement. We have done something that our brothers and sisters across the world haven't done, and that we have refused to give up. And we've got to keep that momentum going. You're very right, Kristen. We have a lot to, well, we will have a lot to congratulate ourselves for when and if the, uh, Roe really falls. So we have to keep up our prayers and, and looking forward to a brighter future. Thank you, Kristen Hawkins, President Thank of you. Students for Life, for joining us today. Bye.
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm on with my husband, Dr. Stephen Christie, author of Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. We just finished a wonderful conversation with Kristen Hawkins. She's the president of Students for Life, someone that Stephen and I are are both fans of. She's a person who has um, taken that, uh, that idea that is very real that the world belongs to the young the future belongs to them and we better be uh, taking care of, of who they are becoming she's taking that very seriously and evangelizes to the youth Stephen you also spend a lot of time talking to young people promoting your book but more than that promoting um, the idea in your book that that the the arguments uh, for abortion are are a finite set <laughs> and that you know it's possible for each of us to learn these arguments and then learn the proper responses that will actually change people's minds do you have um do you have success when you speak to groups about um really you know making people feel really confident that they're able to to learn these these arguments and the responses no, absolutely we've i've gotten a lot of feedback and we've actually done workshops with the books um What's really exciting is that not so much that the book is amazing, and I have to promote it and hope that you'll all go out and buy the book at Amazon, but what's exciting is that the pro-life cause is a winning one, and anybody could have collected really these these arguments and edited them and put them in a user-friendly format, but they're there, and they're useful, and they're ready to go, and when your arguments are based on facts, science, and truth, you will persuade people. I always talk about the pro-choice position relying on cliches and rhetorical deception and personal or ad hominem attacks, and you go nowhere with those. So it's exciting to be on this side where facts, truth, and science really lead the way. My experience so far has has been over the last few years, it's very rare that I don't convince somebody at least to take a big step in the right direction. Maybe twice have I gotten nowhere with people. And this is consistent with the polling. The data shows around between 71 and 75% of people on both sides of this issue agree, for example, for uh, restriction of abortions, none after 12 weeks. That's including pro-choice people. So it's very rare that I can't get people to to agree to that or much less. And, And I believe in incrementalism. I'd love to have no abortions immediately. But in this movement, I don't want to be I don't want to force people at gunpoint to, to from my viewpoint. I want to I want to win these hearts and minds of these people and bring them to my side. When we were talking to Kristen, I mentioned a recent Gallup poll. And this was these are some numbers that uh, that came up in this poll. Forty eight percent of people uh, would like abortion to remain legal, but with some limits. So that would that would tally with what you've just told us. Right. Uh, people that say, well, abortion should be allowed, but not abortion for 40 weeks and for any reason and for sex selection, et cetera, et cetera. Only 32% of people polled thought that abortion should be completely legal. And only 19% thought that it should be completely illegal. Why do you, how do you uh, work with those two numbers? Because I'm in the 19% that, is, that think it should be completely illegal. And I do realize that I'm in a, I am in a minority. And I feel that when, when I speak to people, even who say that they are, I know a lot of people who say they are pro-life. But then, you know, if you press them, they might say, well, yes, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-life. But, you know, in this case or in that extreme case. What do you think about those sort of extreme case situations? Sure, sure. I, I, I don't want to sound too condescending, but polling only reveals what's popular, not what's right or just or moral. 
and polling obviously varies depending on who's doing the polling and how that question is being asked. But remember, when you're looking at a population that says that 30 percent, for example, uh, believe in, in unrestricted abortion, those same people often can't identify who the vice president of the United States is. So it's not necessarily an educated uh, or I wouldn't even say educated, an informed group on this particular topic. Uh, my experience is if you reveal the truth in a kind and compassionate way to them, the people even that are fiercely pro-choice find out that they're not so fiercely pro-choice. And one of the things that, that we didn't talk about in the last segments is a lot of times, and this book is about speaking for the unborn, speaking on their behalf, but sometimes you can let the unborn speak for themselves. So if you go to, for instance, my website where we, we purchase the rights to, to photographs and videos of the unborn at varying stages of development, these are very powerful images for people. So when somebody says to you, you know, at 12 weeks, it's, it's just a clump of cells. Well, I have an argument for why it's not a clump of cells, and it's pretty convincing. But sometimes it's better just to say, hey, would you mind letting me show you a picture on my phone of what a 12-week-old baby looks like? And they might grab your phone and be a little irritated at you. And, and But when they see it, you can see their face change almost always. Their heart is open and they're, they're softened to this the, to the reality. And again, that's another reason why we're so excited about being on this side of the argument. The truth and the facts and science are very, very compelling. So sometimes we let, we let these uh, babies speak for themselves. So I, I'm cautious about polls. Polls are excellent at telling us what is popular. But I can assure you, just after the civil... Uh, just just you know right before just after the civil war there was a lot of people who thought slavery was okay it never made it just or moral it just made it popular and we have to not confuse popularity with with morality one thing that that of course you and i have talked about before but i find a very interesting point is that um, m many people believe that yes abortion destroys the life of a, of a child of an unborn child but that it saves a woman's future this to me is is such a tremendous lie and it's been swallowed by so many people and I am confronted by this belief that abortion helps women. I'm confronted by it constantly. I, I do a lot of education, of um, I do a lot of talks and uh, with a lot of young people and there's this sort of natural belief that they've just imbibed, they've been you know simmering in it since they were born, that abortion is a liberating procedure for women. I know that that's not true. I know it. I've met too many women who've been terribly hurt by abortion, and, and then also for other reasons, for the, the deadbeat man <laughs> reason, right? Explain that to us. Why Absolutely. is a, why so, is abortion not liberating? So it, it's clear, and the evidence has shown this, that abortion degrades everything and everybody it touches. Certainly, obviously, first and foremost, the children, 62 million children dismembered since Roe v. Wade in 1973. It degrades and harms women. It degrades their humanity. It treats their fertility as a defect. It causes guilt and shame and suffering. Uh, it teaches, again, this this defective human anthropology that life is about pleasure and the self self no matter what the cost it teaches women that, that they can only be free and they can only be equal if they actually kill their children and it allows certainly men to use and abuse and abandon these women and it harms men it teaches men to be irresponsible to be uh, to to abuse women at their most vulnerable it teaches that life is about pleasure and the self uh, and it teaches them to not care for the most vulnerable among us. I mean, our instinct should be to rush to the defense of the most vulnerable in our world, not to exploit them uh, for our own satisfaction. And it certainly harms society for all those values. Uh, it you know, undermines the sound vision of what it means to be human. It teaches our children and society that life is disposable and without value, that, that babies are, as they say now, parasites more than human beings. It leads to uh, thoughts of eugenics. It degrades the institution of marriage, which is obviously 
absolutely the bedrock of a strong moral society. And instead of fixing society to make sure women are treated well, we teach them they can, they can only be free if they kill their children. And that's that's terrible. And we're not even talking about everybody else. It, it, it degrades and harms the doctor performing the procedure, the nurse that's in the room, the uh, poor janitor who cleans up the blood and body products at the end. It, it, it's, it's a devastating thing on, uh, to everything that it touches. Wow. What a different, uh, what a different worldview from those that see abortion as a, as a sacred right. And we're seeing so much of that. I've been, I've been really shocked lately at, you know, with the, with the leak of the Dobbs, um, this decision, um, or the, 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 the draft decision by Justice Alito was leaked, as everyone knows. And it's brought out really some violent and, and disturbed reactions to the idea that abortion could just go back to something that's decided by the citizens of each state from a moral perspective. Like, how do we feel morally about abortion? You know, how much of it should be allowed under what circumstances, up until what age of the child? Um, where do you think all that deranged passion is coming from? I think it's it's tough for in major movements in this country for one side, whatever. I'm not going to say who's right or wrong, but for for the quote unquote losing side to deal with change, uh, whether it was the Civil War, whether it was integration. Uh, those are, 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 you know, were huge, gigantic movements in this country. And when decisions were finally made, there was half the population radically objected and marching and burning in the streets and an entire civil war over over those things. I think we have to be courageous in these difficult times and move forward. We do what's right. And sometimes you have to say, well, there, there are going to be difficult consequences. And if it's, it might even be your own safety or the security of your job when you voiced your opinions. But doing the moral and just thing is always the right thing to do, irrespective of the consequences. And my, my heart goes out to the, the justices on the Supreme Court and their children who are being threatened right now. But given the chance to do it any other way, they knew what they were getting into. The leaks have happened before, not at this scale before, but these are people who have, on both sides, uh, whether I believe they're right or wrong, both sides who have risen to, to service uh, and living by a moral code that they believe in. And there's consequences to living by your moral code. If you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, hostess of Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm speaking to my husband, Dr. Stephen Christie, who wrote a book recently called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-second pro-life rebuttals to pro-choice arguments. Now, can I ask you a question? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, I, I, didn't get, I didn't think I'd plan on this, but I have a question. When you married me, I was an atheist, progressive, pro-choice guy. What exactly were you thinking? I could see that, uh, I could see what you were made of. And I, I knew that you were upright and um, noble and you 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 had a connection to you had a connection deep down inside to all that was true and good but your education and your upbringing hadn't hadn't allowed you to understand that about yourself and about god um you were basically tabula rasa <laughs> you were you were a soul that that was very beautiful but but covered up i knew all this but i knew all this very very kind of you i i think you were you must have been a little nuts but 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 very nice of you. <laughs> Probably I was a little nuts, but it was it was a very beautiful um, journey to walk with you in in your conversion process. Um, not just in your conversion to to being um, first a believer in God, then then a Christian, then a Catholic, then a daily mass goer um, with a very vibrant faith, a, a daily practiced faith. 
Um, that, that's been very beautiful. It's been really good for our children. But it's also been really wonderful to watch you become passionate about the, the pro-life um, the pro, pro-life ideals and how foundational those are to everything in our lives, in our country, and the way we treat each other. Because I think that that's how you see it. That It used to be something... When, when you, I think you were always pro-life in a sense that you always respected uh, every human being, even those who were unborn. Um, but but to see it as that um, sort of central issue in, in a in a world gone mad, maybe when maybe the world goes mad when we start treating the most vulnerable and the most uh, delicate and pure amongst us, which who are the unborn, right, the very youngest of us, when we start treating them like trash and they're and being disposable. Yeah, I, I I think it's it reflects it reflects how you most deeply feel about the most profound issues in life. It's not a decision where I, whether I like red ties or blue ties uh, without much consequence to them. But where one stands on these issues of life really says a lot about how you think about every major issue in your life. Yeah, and and I see I see this um, the idea that children are are dis, are disposable. I see it as something that poisons every relationship that we have with each other, with the government, with with our neighbors, um, with um, it just poisons everything. It, it poisons the family. It poisons relations between men and women. I mean, you just alluded to all of this in, in much more elegant language. Uh, but uh, I, I do find that in, in a world where the youngest and, and most delicate and beautiful of us are the ones that that pay that pay no for for disordered lives and and for undignified treatment of 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 women and when when those babies are the ones that are paying well that that tells you a lot about a society that's that's gone completely dysfunctional yeah, it's interesting that your life perspective at, at our young when we got married and mine was shows how different. I remember when we married, I remember telling you, okay, I'm gonna have, I'll agree to two kids. I'll agree to two kids. That that closed-minded view about life. And you, I, I obviously I didn't know it at the time, but you smiled and nodded knowingly. But of course, I had no input on in how many children we were actually gonna have. <laughs> and, and, and we have five now. So, so thank thank God I I had no control over those those issues in our in our marriage. And my favorite thing about the pro-life uh, viewpoint we have and and combined. With our with our faith is our youngest uh, adopted from China, and I usually never talk about adoption, but it's so so uh, related so uh, related to what we're talking about today. So my, I always say my favorite my favorite thing about my faith, and and faith, my faith informs everything that I do, my Catholic faith. But but when. Luli, our littlest one, who's 15 now, and we adopted her when she was only nine months old. She learned about adoption as she, as she got older, you know, and when she was two, she learned, I'm adopted. When she's five, that means something else. When she's seven, when she's nine, she's 13. And I remember when she was maybe five or six, and she turned to me and she said, how come I was adopted? Why was I given up? And my old secular self wouldn't have had an answer. I could say this, the one child policy in China, or I, maybe I have some, I couldn't fumble. And I could say to her with 100% confidence, I could look her right in the eye and I can say, I don't really know why, but one thing I know for sure, God made you for us. <laughs> and and if I had to think what's been my most wonderful moment in my, in my faith journey, if that's what they call it, it's that that understanding of the, the truth. That's not just a, a, a pithy statement. That is the absolute truth of my life. She's, she is proof of God. Well, I have to say amen to that, Stephen. It's, uh, it's been a, a lovely life. 
And um, we're looking forward to grandchildren now. Hopefully our children will also have imbibed this wonderful pro-life attitude and will give us many grandchildren. We can't think of anything better. Thank you for joining me today, Stephen. It was a distinct pleasure to have you on Conversations with Consequences. Thanks for having me. I'll end it the way I did last time. I hope I'm your only guest that ever said, I'm glad I'm married to you and love you very much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we celebrate together the Feast of the Holy Eucharist, His Body and Blood. In the Gospel for this year, the Church has us meditate on the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish to feed the crowd of about 5,000. There are a few reasons why the Church wants us to ponder this miracle on Corpus Christi. First, it happened immediately before Jesus' Bread of Life discourse. Jesus used it to lead us to hunger not for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, the true man of his own flesh and blood that he would give us. Second, because of the verbs we encounter, when St. Luke tells us that Jesus took the bread and fish into his hand, looked up to heaven, blessed and broke them, and gave them to his disciples, these were all gestures and words that are identical to what happened in the upper room when he transformed bread and wine into himself. Third, many great saints have looked at the miracle of the multiplications of loaves and fish as foreshadowings, respectively, of the multiplication of the Eucharist, represented by the bread, and of believers, represented by the fish caught by fishes of men. What I'd like to ponder, however, is the great contrast between the miracle of the loaves and fish and the miracle of the Eucharist. In this Sunday's Gospel, after the Twelve approached Jesus to encourage him to dismiss the crowd so that they could go to the surrounding villages and farms to get provisions, Jesus told them, Give them some food yourselves. Even though they could only scrounge up five small buns and two fish, which would have been inadequate to feed even the apostles, not to mention several thousand, Jesus wanted to incorporate their meager offerings, much like in the Eucharist. He seeks to incorporate our efforts, starting not with grains and grapes, but with bread and wine, not only the fruit of the earth and vine, but the work of human hands. But whereas the apostles could actually give the crowd something themselves, however meager, in the Eucharist, there was no way the apostles directly could give the crowds the spiritual nourishment they needed even more. Jesus alone could do that. And one year after the multiplication of the loaves and fish, during the next Passover, Jesus took bread and wine into his hands in the upper room, totally changed them into his body and blood, and said not just Take and eat this my body, and take and drink this is the chalice of my blood, but also do this in memory of me. Rather than starting with the raw materials of fish and bread, the apostles brought him to multiply. Jesus began the miracle himself, and then gave the apostles the command through the sacrament of holy orders to multiply his body and blood, bringing it to feed the crowds throughout time until the ends of the earth. With regard to the spiritual nourishment we need, Jesus doesn't say, give them some food yourselves, but rather, this is my body, this is my blood, and give them this food. On Corpus Christi, we focus on this tremendous, loving self-gift of Jesus and what a response should be. St. Thomas Aquinas' famous Lauda Zion Salvatorum that the Church proclaims as a sequence before the Gospel this Sunday. St. Thomas tells us what the only fitting response should be. 
Quantum potes tantum aude, he writes. Literally, whatever you can do so much dare, before noting the reality of the gift of the Eucharistic Jesus, far exceeds the capacity of all human praise and action. The spirit of daring to do all we can. Well, it's meant to characterize our approach to the Eucharistic Jesus in general, to the celebration of Corpus Christi in particular, with beautiful masses, periods of adoration, Eucharistic processions, and more, should mark in a special way the attitude of Catholics toward the U.S. Bishop's three-year Eucharistic revival, which starts this Sunday and will, will last through 2025. This is the biggest Eucharistic initiative in the history of the Church in the United States. In this first year, there will be diocesan events for clergy, faithful, students, and more. The second year will focus on helping every parish to become truly Eucharistic and boldly to do all it can. The third will be a national year, beginning with the first National Eucharistic Congress in almost 50 years in the U.S., where the bishops hope 100,000 or more will come to Indianapolis, on July 17th to the 21st, 2024, to celebrate this gift and commit themselves to being Eucharistic missionaries, taking their knowledge and love of the Eucharistic Lord out to fallen away Catholics in their parishes and families, to our Protestant brothers and sisters, and to others. But the most important dimension is not diocesan, parochial, or national. It's personal. The bishops hope that each of us will commit to grow our Eucharistic faith, amazement, life, and love. The reason why the U.S. bishops have established this initiative is a response to a crisis in Eucharistic faith and life. Only one out of five Catholics in the U.S. comes to Mass each Sunday, and far fewer attend Holy Days of Obligation. Several recent surveys have shown that only three out of ten Catholics, and only half of those who attend Mass each Sunday, believe what the Church boldly professes about the Eucharist. That the Eucharist, actually and astonishingly, is Jesus, his body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. That after the words of consecration, God himself is really, truly, and substantially present on our altars, in our tabernacles, and within us who receive him. And since, as the Second Vatican Council famously described, the celebration of the Eucharist is the source, summit, root, and center of Catholic faith and life, if Catholics' Eucharistic faith and present practice are weak, then all of Catholic life is enfeebled. Hence the urgency and importance of the Eucharistic revival. So I'd like to get practical about two ways we're called to live this Eucharistic revival. The first is with regard to the Mass, so that we may get more out of it by putting more love into it. The revival is a chance for us better to prepare for Mass and stoke our desire, knowing that in Mass we enter into, in time into the eternal actions of Jesus in the upper room on Calvary and from the empty tomb. The more we yearn for Jesus, the more we hunger for the food that endures to eternal life that he gives us through his priests, the more we will make our whole life Eucharistic, not just coming to Mass on Sunday and Holy Days when we have to, but during the week when we can, simply out of love. We can likewise focus during this revival on whether we truly pray the Mass or simply attend it, whether we mean the words we say, whether we hang on Jesus' words as words to be done. We can focus on lovingly adoring Jesus before we receive him, the thanksgiving we give for the unbelievable gift, and whether we leave transformed so as to transform the world in the Eucharistic key by giving our own body, blood, sweat, tears, everything we are and have out of love for God and others. The second practical way to live this Eucharistic revival is through Eucharistic adoration, spending time before the Eucharistic Jesus in personal prayer and worship. 
Pope Francis likes to say that Eucharistic adoration, his favorite form of prayer, crushes our idols, helps us to grow stronger in our faith in Christ Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, with us in the Holy Eucharist. To those who don't believe in Jesus' real presence in the Eucharist, Eucharistic adoration is foolish, almost, as some heretics blasphemously call it, cookie worship. But if we take Jesus' word seriously when he says, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, my body is true food, my blood true drink, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Then we come before Jesus in worship and grow in Eucharistic faith as well as become more like him whom we adore. If we really believe that the Eucharist is Jesus and we love him, then we want to spend more time with him. Jesus said to Margaret Mary that he had so loved the world that he exhausted himself in testimony of his love. But for most, he received only indifference, irreverence, coldness, sacrilege, and scorn toward him in the Eucharist. What we ought to give Jesus is exactly the opposite. Instead of indifference, we should make him in the Eucharist the biggest difference in our life. Instead of irreverence, we should bathe him with reverence and piety. Instead of coldness, passion. Instead of sacrilege, holy souls, purified in confession, instead of scorn, the greatest praise and thanks we can muster. Eucharistic adoration helps us to do just that. A third way I'll mention briefly is by taking Jesus in the Eucharist out to the world. In Corpus Christi, many of us will participate in processions, which the priest will place the Eucharistic Jesus in a monstrance, carry him around our parish or into our local neighborhood. That's beautiful and a real testimony to your Eucharistic faith and love. While Eucharistic adoration helps to grow in Eucharistic discipleship, Eucharistic processions help us to grow in Eucharistic apostolate, trying to share our faith in the Eucharist with others. The awesome reality is that when we receive Jesus within in Holy Communion, we in fact become monstrances, sent out to the world to bring Jesus to others, much like the Blessed Mother after she conceived Jesus within her by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Annunciation, went with haste to bring Jesus growing inside of her to St. Elizabeth and St. John the Baptist. What a privilege it is to take Jesus inside of us to others. What an opportunity to show others the difference Jesus in the Eucharist makes in our life. The way we respond to Jesus in the Eucharist should be greater than the way any of us respond to the most effective medicines. We take two Advil and know it will alleviate our headache, or two Tums and take away our heartburn. How much more should the Eucharist change our life? As we prepare to celebrate Corpus Christi and begin the Eucharistic revival, we thank the Lord Jesus for the incredible love he has shown us in humbly giving himself as our spiritual nourishment. He accounted nothing else worthy of our souls. We ask him for the grace to dare to do all we can in response to his self-gift. By the way we prioritize him in the Eucharist, spend time with him in adoration, and seek to bring him to others and others to him. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 